Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm talking to Martin Ruffalo. We are talking about some recent research he's been doing when getting his PhD. He's very interested in the relationship between muscular failure and hypertrophy. We get into lots of deep discussion and many practical take-homes as well. So enjoy that. And as a reminder, we at Revive Stronger are coaches ourselves, online coaching for fat loss, muscle gain. And if you're looking to get to stage or a photo shoot, we will be able to help you. If you're interested in that, definitely check the link below for our coaching service and you can learn more about that but without further ado let's get into the show hi guys welcome to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today i have martin ruffalo on the podcast uh, he is the education manager at jps fitness health and fitness uh, hopefully you guys know of jps or you may know jacob skeppus who has been on the podcast with us before we also um, have our ultimate guide to contest prep which we wrote with him and jacob linden and uh, he has a bsc and msc from in exercise science uh, he is a phd candidate accredited sports nutritionist so he has all of that great education and also you're pretty jacked and you like training hard yourself martin don't you yeah i do i do um i do love my, my hard training <laughs> yeah <laughs> i wanted to say like back in my contest prep back in 2017 uh, if it wasn't for your podcast i probably wouldn't have been able to get through all the hours i spent on the treadmill doing cardio so I just wanted to say that, yeah, it's a privilege to be here chatting to you, Steve, because being a guest now is is quite an honor. And like I said, if it wasn't for this podcast, I'm not sure exactly how I would have dealt with all the <laughs> hours spent on the treadmill back in 2017. So yeah, I've uh, competed twice in bodybuilding and yeah, now I spend most of my time coaching clients, wide range of clients and aspiring competitors as well, which is um, aspiring competitors as well, which is which is pretty cool. I need to dig through your Instagram and find these uh, competition photos because I actually yeah. hadn't. Re I knew I'd seen like you posing and things, but I had't seen you yeah. uh, stage shots. So I'm gonna have to yeah. uh, check them out because <laughs> you just gotta scroll, scroll down. You have some pretty. Um, yeah, I know yeah, you have yeah. pretty big quads, so that's like what. Yes. My memory is like just these massive quads. Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah. just like, oh, it's yeah. Well, like, we're, we're always um, comparing leg size at JPS, so I'm yeah. sure you've seen some photos. <laughs> Yeah, because Jacob has ridiculous quads too. Yes. And that's like one of my areas where I have like an insecurity of not having big enough quads. And I'm just like, ah. So yeah. whenever I see them, I'm like, oh, yeah, nice <laughs> yeah. big quads. Yeah. So that's yeah, yeah. awesome. And yeah, like we were talking off air, I've, I've been kind of, I have been keeping up with Martin's stuff and what he's doing over there at JPS because just generally the team over there is fantastic. And I, I love what you guys are doing. And then I was listening to, I think, a, a podcast where Jacob brought up a, a study that you'd kind of recently been working on. And so I reached out and I was like, oh, sounds kind of right up my street. I'd like to kind of read it over and read it over. And I was like, this sounds like good stuff to be able to bring to the podcast. So I'm, I'm really glad we can be mm -hmm. here talking about that. And the study, so people are aware, as one you co-authored, um, towards an improved understanding of proximity to failure in resistance training and its influence on skeletal muscle hypertrophy, neuromuscular fatigue, muscle damage, and perceived discomfort, a scoping review, which I think people will be aware of. I think a lot of the listeners will think, oh yeah, we know kind of reps and reserve and proximity to mm -hmm. failure and that relationship and everything. But I thought it was interesting reading your study um, because like there's some things people maybe aren't aware of uh, that you mm -hmm. guys went into and wanted to clarify. So uh, why did you feel like you wanted to do the study first of all, I think will be interesting for the listeners. Yeah, for sure. So I guess just to overview, like my main research focus is muscle hypertrophy. And specifically, it's how proximity to failure during resistance training may influence muscle hypertrophy as per the title of that scoping review. And I guess one of the main reasons that I wanted to investigate this topic as part of my PhD is because the idea that you have to train hard to build muscle, it's really stood the test of time. Like bodybuilders over the years have built physiques with many different exercises, many different training splits, but at the end of the day, you know, the main building blocks have been doing enough training and ensuring that training is hard enough. And when I say hard in this sense, I'm referring to your proximity to failure. So when you do dig into the research surrounding proximity to failure and you take time to, I guess, employ a scientific viewpoint when interpreting some of these studies, 
you do realize, and this is, you know, uh, I guess, realization I came across uh, in the early stages of my PhD, that there is a lot of ambiguity and variability in the research. And, uh, you know, you, we hear people speak about studies uh, surrounding proximity to failure a lot in the industry. But in reality, there isn't much that there's a lot that we don't know. I, I should put it that way. And I guess my goal is to provide more clarity uh, around this topic. And that was the point of the scoping review. So really with the scoping review, we dug into a bunch of different studies that looked at muscle hypertrophy and short-term responses to resistance training as well. So neuromuscular fatigue being one of them, a muscle damage, perceived discomfort as well. And these short-term responses might influence long-term muscle hypertrophy. Potentially, they might have a negative influence on long-term muscle hypertrophy, which is why I'm also interested in not just the physiological adaptation of hypertrophy itself, but also you know the byproducts of, of training hard enough uh, to to build muscle. And I guess if you want me to provide a bit more of a, an overview of like our findings, um, I'm happy to do that. But um, yeah, which way did you want to steer this, Steve? Yeah, it was, uh, I think, kind of hearing your objectives and then kind of uh, what you did in terms yeah. of, I think the three themes would be really helpful for people because yes, then they get totally. the idea of why the literature is not completely clear because Correct. the different definitions of things, yeah. Yeah, sure. So I guess much of the previous research has simply compared failure versus non-failure training to come to a conclusion about how proximity to failure may influence muscle hypertrophy. Now, one of my main concerns is that this has led people to dichotomize failure and non-failure training in practice. So it's very common, for example, to hear people say, well, should we train to failure or should we not train to failure? It's important to realize, though, that these studies have been designed in a very specific way. So researchers design these studies with very specific research questions, and they compare failure and non-failure training to find out if one is better than the other. But in many cases, these research questions aren't actually designed to inform how we should all be individually approaching our training. So this is why it's so important to dive deeper into these studies and actually look at the research questions being asked and how these research questions may differ from study to study. So if we look at the available literature as a whole, what we see is that there are different definitions of failure that are applied across studies. And so previous meta-analyses, for example, have lumped a bunch of these studies together and analyzed all of them at once but one of the main limitations to that approach is that studies do compare, do use different definitions of failure, like I mentioned, and these meta-analyses are comparing studies with different definitions of, of failure. And so the stimulus achieved in these failure groups is arguably different. And so it doesn't make for a very valid uh, comparison. Of course, it's better than nothing. But what I wanted to do was take a more rigorous approach. So in the literature, essentially, there are three themes of studies that investigate proximity to failure. So for example, the first one, which I uh, describe as theme A, involves studies that apply the definition of momentary muscular failure. So for me, momentary muscular failure seems to be the most objective way to define failure in research and in practice. And the way I've defined it in this scoping review is simply the point where an individual is unable to complete the concentric portion of their repetition without a full range of motion, right? Despite attempting to do so. So this definition describes an involuntary form of set termination. You don't actually choose when momentary muscular failure takes place. It simply happens. And of course, we have to uphold our technique. So this definition also accounts for um, no technical deviation. And it's these studies that I'm primarily interested in because I have a high degree of confidence in how these, the researchers actually controlled failure, right? 
So that's one group of, of studies, right? But then we have another two groups of studies. So for example, theme B is all the other studies that use other definitions of failure other than momentary muscular failure. So for example, researchers sometimes apply the definition of volitional failure, which simply permits the participants to terminate their sets when they believe they've gotten to the point of failure. But of course, you could you could imagine how the stimulus achieved across participants in each set performed may differ if it is really up to them to terminate sets, right? So there's a, there's a bunch of studies that fit into that theme. And then there's a third theme, which I think is underrepresented in many chats surrounding proximity to failure. And in this theme, researchers use velocity loss thresholds to control the proximity to failure achieved in different conditions that are being compared. So uh, velocity loss for the people who don't know, it's simply calculated as the percentage decrease in lifting velocity from the first rep performed. So as we know, when we're performing a set, the lifting velocity generally drops from rep to rep as we approach failure. So for example, if I have a group performing resist resistance training to a 40% velocity loss, we can assume that they are training closer to failure than another group that might be performing resistance training to a 20% velocity loss because the magnitude of velocity loss in the 40% condition or group would be greater. So I looked at each theme individually and tried to come to interpretations within each theme. And that's where things get interesting and where we can actually come to, I guess, more robust conclusions about the influence of proximity to failure on muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, I think uh, those three themes were great because, yes, yeah, like you said, if, if people are like choosing basically where failure is, uh, not mm -hmm. only like different people have different perceptions of that fatigue and that's going to make those studies really quite a lot less helpful. And if anything, I guess people are more likely to be further, they're going to be further from failure than true failure. Cause I imagine right. no one in those studies is hitting that concentric mm -hmm. failure point. Uh, and mm -hmm. the velocity loss makes a lot of sense. I think practically people who have used like reps in reserve or RPE know like reps slow down. And so that, yes. that's quite like a, a useful marker there as well. And I guess that differs though a little bit different person to person. Like you get those people that can grind like multiple right. reps, you know, like, whoop, mm -hmm. whereas you get that person who's like hits one slow rep and they they hit that mm -hmm. concentric failure point. So that's why I think, like you said, that momentary muscular failure where they just like, they come up and they can't, that's mm -hmm. definitely the most objective kind of and the, mm -hmm. those studies therefore hold a little bit more power than the, the other ones which makes a ton of sense to me correct and i guess to piggyback on top of some of the things you said uh, it's it's not just the failure conditions that may differ from study to study in the way they are controlled it's also the the non-failure conditions so like you mentioned, Steve, with the velocity loss studies, um, a 40% velocity loss for me may lead to a different proximity to failure than it may for you, right? So although that is, uh, to some extent, a, a reliable way to try and control like the proximity to failure in a, in a given group. So for example, I can tell 10 participants to stop their sets when they reach 40% velocity loss. The, the actual proximity to failure, if we're defining that via RIR, might still differ from participant to participant. And if we look at non-failure groups in other studies, so for example, in theme A and theme B, we have set failure conditions versus non-failure conditions, set failure being whatever definition of a failure is applied. In, in those non-failure conditions, not many of the studies are actually paying attention to the true proximity to failure achieved. Right, it's it's in most cases an arbitrary set termination point. For example, in many of the studies that look at neuromuscular fatigue, uh, the non-failure conditions stop their sets or terminate their sets when they've reached fifty percent of the maximum repetitions possible. Right, so we might have two two uh, conditions. One condition is is training to their twelve rep max, which is going to be classified as 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 failure. And the other conditions will stop 
when they reach six reps, right? Six reps, assuming uh, they're using a, a 12 repetition maximum load, right? So it's half the maximum possible repetitions. And in these studies, what we find is that, yes, failure is more fatiguing than non-failure training, but non-failure training can mean so many different things. Like non-failure can comprise various proximities to failure, and the current research, if we if we look at it as a whole and we 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 try and come to an overarching conclusion, yes, we can say that failure training is more fatiguing than non-failure training, but we don't really know the specific effect of different proximities to failure and fatigue. And the same goes for hypertrophy. What I found on reading each and every one of these studies and trying to come to a conclusion in each theme, I found that. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference in based on these studies when it comes to non-failure versus uh, failure for hypertrophy uh, on on hypertrophy. There doesn't seem to be much of a difference, but again, we don't know the specific effect of different proximities to failure on muscle hypertrophy, and that's an issue that I am trying to address in my future research. I want to be more clear and unambiguous with the proximities to failure reached in you know the groups um that are as part that are that are part of my studies so that we can derive more improved you know practical recommendations from the results because like i said non-failure training can consist of various different proximities to failure and in practice we want to be able to provide you know more clear recommendations because at the end of the day simply stating that conclusion you know, there's no difference between failure and non-failure training for hypertrophy. That's not very helpful. And one of my main concerns is that a lot of people in the fitness industry have, have taken that conclusion and have, I guess, thought that failure training is thus not useful and that we don't need to train to failure and that all of our training should simply comprise non-failure training. But I think that's a flawed way to look at the results of all these studies because there are benefits of, of training to failure that I think everyone needs to experience. And when interpreting the results of a, of a study and of you know the available literature as a whole, there needs to be an interpretive framework that mediates between the results of the study and practical application. So we can't just look at the results of the study and immediately apply them in practice, right? We have to apply that interpretive framework in the middle, take into consideration a whole host of, you know, other factors, um, especially practical considerations, and then come to some sort of a practical, uh, I guess, recommendation or conclusion about the results of all, of all these studies. And that's what I'm trying to do as part of my research uh, with the scoping review and with the future experiments and, and studies that I run. Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. Yeah, I think that's very well said because, yeah, we have. Uh, I guess there are people, yeah, who will hear maybe even the conclusion, not reading kind of the entire paper. Maybe they just read some sort of conclusion from your paper and be like, oh, like it doesn't seem that you need to train to failure for hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. It's like it could cause more fatigue, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, okay, so I ne yeah. I'm never going to go there. And I don't know, they could be yeah. in their first year of lifting and they've never truly experienced what failure That's is. Right. And now they're just kind of going through the motions and like, not seeing uh, as great progress mm -hmm. if they were just going in there and working hard and mm -hmm. I guess that's the that's the difference between <clears throat> now's day and age versus probably when we got into lifting when mm -hmm. there was none of this research available and it yep. was just a case of go in, go hard, go yep. harder yep. until like, I don't know, you start regressing and you're like, oh, maybe you get an injury and then you try and find something yep. that leads you the right path. And I just kind of, my body deloaded for me in that sense yes. back in the day. <laughs> and so we've yep. kind of had that almost a blessing in disguise where we've just gone in and worked mm -hmm. hard. Whereas there are now mm -hmm. kind of people getting into the industry who are maybe listening to this podcast and like, Oh, like I want to be smart about this, which is great. 
but mm-hmm. maybe or hopefully they're listening to this podcast and not just like reading papers or reading tidbits off like Instagram from like these influencers mm-hmm. who want to sound you know fancy or mm-hmm. different or contrarian mm-hmm. and yeah they mm-hmm. could get into that kind of position where they're just like I mean at the end of the day when you think about trying to make change to things you have to stress the system to mm-hmm. a quite a significant degree and mm-hmm. yeah so that's yeah. where that could like lead people down the wrong path but i know within the paper as well you talked about kind of some of these kind of what does this mean practically at the moment at least where you guys uh were in the paper what did you see in terms of using this information practically for people when they're training what are your what are you looking at in terms of like individual differences kind of volume frequency loads i know you kind of had some general recommendations there Mm -hmm. that maybe would be helpful for some of the listeners yeah, so of course from here it can get quite comprehensive because when we are looking at the influence of proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy, there's so many other additional factors that we have to consider and that need to be discussed. So, for example, a lot of people seem to zoom in on the influence of proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy in just one specific set. So, you know, you might hear the question, uh, of how close to failure should I train? You might hear that question quite often and people might ask you that question. And you know that's a fair enough question to ask, but what we should be mostly interested in is how proximity to failure may influence the stimulus achieved across a whole session because no one ever really comes into the gym and just performs one set. So we're not really concerned about how things play out in just one set, it's more so the combination of sets over the course of a whole workout. So we have some strong suspicions to to believe that proximity to failure influences the mechanical tension achieved in a given set. But I'm interested in how that relationship may change over time, right? Over the course of a whole workout. And of course, that's where neuromuscular fatigue may come into play. Because we know that fatigue increases over the course of multiple sets. And then there may be an interaction there between fatigue and muscle hypertrophy, right? And so the recommendations surrounding proximity to failure, they need to be adaptive because it really does depend on how the other variables in your program are prescribed. Right. So in future research, I hope to look into this relationship a little bit further. And I actually just finished up a, an experimental study at JPS Health and Fitness, which is independent of the scoping review, where I looked specifically at the effect of proximity to failure on neuromuscular fatigue over the course of six sets performed um, with a barbell bench press. So This study is unique because like I said earlier, I tried to control the proximity to failure achieved in each of the conditions that I was experimenting with. So for example, uh, the participants in my study all performed three different uh, resistance training conditions or protocols. So one protocol was performed to momentary muscular failure as per the different definition I mentioned earlier. The other protocol or one of the other protocols was performed to a one RIR. And then the the third protocol was performed to a three RIR and participants subjectively terminated their sets when they believed to have gotten to that point. And I guess you may ask, well, how do we know if participants were accurate? And I guess there are measures that I put into place to try and ensure participants were as accurate as possible. And remember in practice, you know, even in our own training, we're never going to know if we're truly accurate. And the thing is, for an RIR scale to work well, it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. You just have to be close enough, consistently enough over time to achieve the stimulus that you need to build muscle. So uh, in, in this study, uh, I put participants through a, familiar, a familiarization period before the study even began. And I actually got them to train to failure and I got them to practice predicting their reps and reserve. And do keep in mind that these participants were all resistance trained. So I had 12 men and 12 women and the training experience across both 
um, uh, sexes there was about seven to eight years of training experience. So quite well-trained individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I put them through what I think is the gold standard way of assessing how accurate someone is with their RIR prediction. So I told them that they were going to perform a set to momentary muscular failure and that they needed to yell out when they think during that set, they either have one or three reps in reserve. So on two separate sets, one set, we did a one RIR, second set, we did a three RIR. And I did that with each participant. And what I found was that uh, on average, when predicting a one RIR, participants were less than half a rep away from the target, which is quite accurate, right? So less than half a rep away from the one RIR target. And that's quite promising because all these individuals actually had RIR experience, right? They've been coached by coaches at JPS or coaches external to JPS. They've all had RIR experience and they were all really close to the RIR targets I'd prescribed. When it came to the three RIR target, um, they were just under a rep away from the three RIR. And as we know, as you get closer to failure, it seems to get easier to predict accurately. So essentially what I found in in this study and some of these uh, conclusions, of course, these conclusions aren't peer-reviewed yet. So do take what I'm uh, stating here with, do interpret what I'm stating here with with caution. But essentially what I found was that fatigue increased linearly as we got closer to failure, which is something that we intuitively know, but it's really cool to be able to actually get the participants to reach specific proximities to failure and then compare the results. Because like I said, in current research, most studies are just comparing non-failure training, which can mean a whole host of different proximities to failure with some definition of failure. And again, this has important implications. And I guess one of the other things that stood out in my study was there seemed to be a bit of a difference between men and women. And Again, we hear a lot of people speak about the potential differences in neuromuscular fatigability between men and women. You know, we usually hear people say that females can recover faster than than males, or they don't, they're not as fatigable. And I did see a bit of a trend for men being more fatigable than women, especially when the point of failure was reached. Right. So when when participants went through the failure condition, men seem to experience a disproportionate amount of fatigue um, compared to the women, which is interesting. And again, this has implications in practice because when we experience fatigue throughout a resistance training session, there may be some interaction, like I said, with muscle hypertrophy. So for example, uh, the fatigue that we pick up, maybe it's some central fatigue that we pick up over the course of a resistance training session, that can affect the excitation of muscle fibers. So it can affect the signal being sent from the brain or the spinal cord to the muscle fiber. And arguably that can reduce the force that that muscle fiber is being produced, that, that the force that that muscle fiber is producing. In most cases, this is occurring to type two muscle fibers. And if that's the case, then we may be experiencing less mechanical tension over the course of multiple sets that occur you know, over, over a workout. And same goes for peripheral fatigue. There may be an effect of peripheral fatigue that occurs within the muscle. That may also affect the force production of type 2 muscle fibers as sets go on and as that peripheral fatigue accumulates. And so over the course of a resistance training session, it's important to consider that proximity to failure may need to be modulated, right? So it's hard for me to just say, we should always be training to a one RIR or a two RIR because my recommendations will change based on the exercise being performed, based on the sequencing of exercises in a in a workout, the muscle groups being trained, etc. So, for example, Steve, if you told me that you could only perform one set for your chest, you know, in a workout, and you you asked me how hard you should be pushing that set, I would simply say push it all the way to failure because there really is no effect of fatigue and just just one set you do the set you push it to failure and that's it but again in reality in practice people are performing multiple sets in a workout so 
in my uh, research, I didn't really provide any clear uh, recommendations as to a specific RIR that should be reached, especially in that scoping review. And one of the reasons is we simply don't have enough clarity in the current literature to say that you should be reaching, for example, two reps in reserve or, or one rep in reserve. And I think, like I said, it needs to be dependent on the allocation of other variables in your in your program. So, you know, uh, 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 I guess a simple way to think about it, um, and I guess this is a practical example, if you're performing, uh, you know, leg presses, the start of your workout, because they're quite fatiguing, uh, both, you know, on a muscular level and on, aerob and on an aerobic level, and we know that, you know, your aerobic capacity and aerobic fatigue, if you will, can also affect motor unit recruitment, et cetera. It might be a good idea if that's your first exercise to keep a couple reps in the tank. And of course, training to a true RIR on an exercise like a leg press or a barbell squat, if it's a true true RIR, it's going to be quite a hard set as I'm sure you've experienced. Now, of course, after that barbell squat or that leg press, we might perform a single leg leg press, right? And you could probably push that closer to failure. So again, the, the recommendations around proximity to failure would change as the workout is going, as, as the workout is extending. And then if you finish with a leg, leg extension, I'd probably say, well, push that one all the way to failure because it's, it's your last exercise, right? And the effects of fatigue aren't going to creep in to any subsequent exercise because the workout would then be completed. So I guess that's the way I view the effects of proximity to failure, like on muscle hypertrophy and how that may change over the course of a workout. So for me, instead of asking, you know, whether or not we should be trained to failure or not, or asking, you know, how close we should be pushing specific sets uh, to failure, you know, what's that optimal RIR? For me, it's more so trying to, I guess, understand how we can maximize the stimulus achieved over, over the course of a whole session, right? With the interaction of all these different variables, uh, primarily, you know, volume and proximity to failure being the two main, I guess, um, building blocks for hypertrophy. So in most cases, what I tell people is that I simply want you to be performing your training as close to failure as required to maintain a high level of exposure to mechanical tension over the course of the whole workout, right? And limit any excessive neuromuscular fatigue that may simply be counterproductive as the session goes on, right? So like you mentioned earlier, uh, you can't get around the fact you need to train hard. And I think previous research conclusions that simply state there is no difference between failure and non-failure training probably are a bottleneck to many individuals, um, many people's training journeys, because like I mentioned earlier, they, many people are under the impression that they don't need to train to failure at all. But I guess if we better understand this concept, and, and that's what I'm really trying to get at here, like this idea of training hard, we know we have to do it, but we also know there's probably a limit right? Like you said earlier, if you don't understand these concepts, your body will end up deloading for you. Uh, I want to simply better understand these ideas, right? So that we can capitalize on them. And I think improved research study designs, and I guess, uh, improved conclusions, right, that account for the interaction of all these other variables is going to help in future years, as we see more research come through. Really interesting, uh, really interesting stuff. This, especially that study, I think, is uh, really, really cool. And those insights are really great because, like, they're very well trained lifters. And, like you said, you got them like familiarized with RER or they mm -hmm. were already familiarized with it. And yep. to know kind of, and it's nice also that you're seeing some new things, but also it's relaying some of the things we kind of thought mm -hmm. we already knew in terms of people are more accurate as they get closer to failure and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then females maybe don't experience as much fatigue. So it's very interesting on that front. Do you have any thoughts to why females don't? Do you think, were they generally less, like using less loads than the men? Do you think that's the relationship or do you think it's down to like them being female mm -hmm. versus male? 
That's a really interesting question. And I'm not sure if I have a very clear answer, but I do have some suspicions. So I guess the resistance training experience across both sexes was similar. So they're both, you know, both sexes were very well trained. Uh, of course, the men were using a greater absolute load than yeah. the women, especially when it comes to an exercise like a bench press. So it may be a strength or a load dependent mechanism where the greater the absolute load, uh, the greater the the energy required to move that load, the energy cost required to move that load. So it, it could simply be a function of absolute load, but there are also physiological differences between men and women, which uh, may lead to some of the some of the differences that I noticed in my study, and definitely some of the I guess differences like I've anecdotally noticed are working with many men and yeah. also many women as well. So you know one of the I guess factors that I'm writing about is. Uh, muscle size. So men on average have larger uh, musculature than women do. And the larger the muscle, uh, generally the more arterial occlusion it experiences during muscular contractions. And of course, if there's more arterial occlusion, there's likely also greater peripheral fatigue, which may be leading to the differences we're seeing at failure when fatigue is obviously really high and you know we're maximizing the number of contractions we can perform in a set. Uh, so that could be a reason why, and of course, there are other physiological differences as well that are generally hypothesized to lead to sex differences and fatigability. And really, it, it's hard to pinpoint what is exactly causing these potential differences that we observe in practice and that we may be observing in research as well. And for me, I'm I'm starting to, although I love physiology, I'm starting to become, I guess, less inclined in having to have a physiological explanation for everything. And I'm I'm really interested in practical outcomes. Yeah. So these are the the outcomes we're seeing in research, and they map onto, you know, what we have potentially observed in practice as well. Well, you know, I'm going to, I guess, be more inclined in giving a lot of credence to to these to these findings even if we can't pinpoint a physiological uh mechanism that explains what we're seeing yeah that makes a, a lot of sense and i another question i had i guess you probably don't have a, a solid answer to this but i'm sure you have some thoughts to it in terms of there being different kind of almost if you could call it like a different stimulus fatigue ratio of proximity to failure for men and women at least on that bench press whether or not that also applies like say it's just to men but between different lifts so like going mm -hmm. to a failure on a leg extension versus on like you said like mm -hmm. you're probably going to failure on a leg extension what's the is the stimulus fatigue dynamic the same as on a leg press or is it just ex like it's just exponentially mm -hmm. more on the leg press mm -hmm. just higher on both or is it mm -hmm. uh kind of the fact that actually you just don't see it as bad a kind of fatigue side on the leg extension so yeah so my study, like I said, was uh, based on the bench press, six sets with four minutes rest in between those sets. So the conclusions are based on that study design. But of course, if we were to manipulate the exercise being performed, potentially the sets being performed and even the rest, we would see a different stimulus to fatigue dynamic over the course of the sets performed. So, you know, I am, I guess, inclined to think that on the leg press, you know, the total degree of fatigue would probably uh, be higher. And funnily enough, um, initially, I was supposed to include the leg press into my study. So it was meant to be, uh, it was originally planned to be a leg press and a bench press. But out of the first, I had four participants, uh, my first four participants who who started the, the study, out of those four, three actually experienced a minor injury on the leg press when they were pushing it close to failure at that, at that failure point or that one RIR point. So I guess what this shows is that we have to be smart and strategic about the way we expose someone to close proximities to failure. Of course, 
when it comes to a study, it's putting them through a familiarization phase and then getting right into the study. So really there's no time to slowly expose someone to the stimulus. But yeah, what I found was the fatigue seemed to be much higher on the leg press. And of course, the uh, risk of injury was slightly higher there as well. Um, So the exercise performed definitely influences that stimulus to fatigue dynamic and whether or not the results would be different with um, different exercises, you know, is is unclear, but I would seem to think that we'd probably see a similar trend. It would just be the degree of fatigue uh, incurred uh, across different exercises would be different, right? Based on whether they're multi-joint or single joint, um, the size of the muscle itself and other muscle related characteristics. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Really interesting. Um, that's, yeah, just says a lot. The fact that yeah, a few people got injured as you started approaching yeah. that. I think a lot yeah. of people can attest to how the leg press is just, it's a very brutal machine. Yeah. Um, so something that came into my thought, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are thinking about it, is like, where does maybe technical failure come into all of this? Is that part of momentary muscular failure uh, or is it a separate kind of thing? Is it something that's been looked at in the research or is it just something that kind of weave? Mm-hmm. I know like Brad Schoenfeld, for example, that's his preferred kind of use of a failure. Mm-hmm. He talks about technical failure. Where does that come yeah. in? So, so my definition of momentary muscular failure accounts for technical proficiency so what i mean by this is if like like my definition of momentary muscular failure requires you to reach that point of involuntary set termination with good technique without breaking your technique right and of course with every exercise we perform we have to be willing to apply a certain range of technical deviation that we're going to accept yes especially in practice and that's going to differ based on the exercise being performed any safety concerns, et cetera. So my definition accounts for that. And in research, it's really important that we choose exercises that we know participants can actually perform really well with high proficiency and reach momentary muscular failure without any technical breakdown. So the bench press um, was an exercise that all my participants had performed before. And there were no issues regarding technique. Everyone was able to reach that failure point with relatively good technique. They were touching their chest and driving up. And when they got to the point where they couldn't drive any further and they came to a halt, that was the end of the set. Now, in practice, when performing different exercises, uh, our level of proficiency with technique might not map on to the complexity of a exercise that we're performing. And so we may reach technical failure before momentary muscular failure. So of course, in practice, technical failure is a definition that as coaches, we have to be willing to apply. But the goal really for me when I'm programming for hypertrophy is to select exercises that I know my clients, right? My individual clients can perform really well and can perform all the way to momentary muscular failure with very limited uh, chances of technique breakdown. And that's where you really have to personalize the exercise selection to the client's individual level of technique proficiency. So what I'm trying to do as a coach is provide my clients with the best opportunity possible to reach close proximity to failure or to reach momentary muscular failure with no technique breakdown. And if I find that on, on a given exercise, my clients are more prone to reach technical failure first, well, there are uh, considerations that I would then have to make. So for example, I might change that exercise completely or I might regress it or I might just uh, reinforce the fact that, you know, we have to spend a another week or two really dialing in your technique before we start pushing this exercise hard, right? But of yeah. course, if we're in a contest prep, then we don't really have time for practicing exercises um, for the most part. It's really a matter of achieving the most stimulus possible in every session we perform 
so that we can retain as much muscle as possible. And so changing exercises potentially in that scenario would be um, a good approach. But that's really the way I think about it. And I think it really highlights the importance of individualization when it comes to selecting exercises and ensuring clients can get to those close proximities to failure with no issues uh, surrounding you know, a technique breakdown that we consider uh, enough to terminate the set. Yeah, that makes uh, loads of sense. And I just think of like a when I was one-on-one PTing, it'd be a case of like if someone, they want to learn how to squat, but you, you can't like, they're going to hit technical failure before any mm-hmm. of their muscles have really like mm-hmm. started giving up. So you kind of mm-hmm. maybe do some technique with them. Then you go to like a leg press and that's a bit less complicated and they can yep. execute that well. So that makes loads of sense. Uh, my next question is related to, you spoke about kind of, we don't look at an individual like set in terms of like how close should we take this to failure? You described like a workout. Do you have thoughts on how does that translate to like a work, a, a complete like microcycle and then a, a mesocycle as a whole? Do you mm. have different prescriptions? Can you walk through a workout? Does Do you have any thoughts on to how that might relate to, I guess a lot of the listeners probably to make it like, um, give an example, will be aware of kind of the idea of starting out kind of a mesocycle kind of close proximity to failure, maybe three RAR, and then looking to progress the RAR week to week. Is that something mm-hmm. that you think it has value? Uh, where does that come into your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So I guess when you're looking at the overall design of a mesocycle, I guess when I'm designing a mesocycle and I'm writing up a, you know, a phase of training for a client, I've always got an anticipated, I guess, mesocycle duration in mind, right? Like how, how, how hard am I going to be pushing this client? And how much hard training do I think they can sustain week to week? That's going to differ from client to client. I have some clients who I know can push hard training for 10 weeks straight. They can dig deep, they can suck it up and look, they're going to feel pretty, um, rusty by the end of the phase, but they're going to get there. Other clients may only be able to sustain six weeks of hard training. And again, this comes down to many factors, you know, personal predispositions and and traits and individual fatigability. And this is why knowing your clients is so crucial, such a crucial aspect of the coaching process. When I first start working with a new client, all I know about them really is, is what I read on a questionnaire and what I see on their previous training logs. But really, that's not enough to, to individualize their programs to, to a great extent. When you first write a program, for the most part, it's an educated guess based on the Absolutely. minimum number of things you know about the client and based on your experiences as a coach and what you think is best practice. So I guess retaining a client is such an important aspect of, of coaching because as you work with a client over time, the programs should become more individualized. And that's how you get to know whether one client can push for 10 weeks and another client maybe wouldn't be able to do that. So when it comes to proximity to failure over the course of a mesocycle, it really does depend obviously on the length of the mesocycle. Generally, what I'm doing when I'm working with clients is I'm easing them in to, I guess, a level of training intensity that I think is sufficient to induce the stimulus that we need to build muscle and that I think is quite sustainable over the course of consecutive weeks. So that might look like a slowly increasing proximity to failure in the first few weeks of their training phase. But then for the most part, what I seem to do with many clients is keep that level of intensity, that level of proximity to failure quite constant over numerous weeks because from my perspective, the stimulus required to induce muscle hypertrophy is more like a range. So it's not like we necessarily need to be meeting one specific spot each week and then progressing it from there to build muscle. We do have a range to work within. And if we can keep a client within that range for a prolonged period of time, then arguably we're going to be maximizing the results that we are achieving with this client over the course of the, the whole mesocycle because we can sustain that mesocycle 
for longer. And of course, there's many different ways you can go about this though. There's no one hard rule that we all have to follow. So when we're looking at you know the results of studies and we're we're trying to piece all these different I guess facts together and these pieces of information together what we need to really do at the end of the day is integrate these pieces of information with our understanding of training and nutrition principles right in this case training principles how does our understanding of proximity to failure feed in to all the principles that we use to write a program for a client, right? How does proximity to failure influence our understanding of progressive overload, of variation, specificity, and so on? And as at the end of the day, if if you're able to do that with all the information that you have at hand, if you're able to integrate it into your understanding of principles, well, you can then write a method, right? Write a program based on that those principles um, in in many different ways, right? Again, there's many different ways you can write a program and I mentioned earlier in this podcast, bodybuilders uh, over the years have built their physiques with a whole host of different strategies, right? At the end of the day, the building blocks have been there. They're always present. And again, if we can use our understanding of principles, then we're going to be able to come up with our own methods that will induce the results we are after. So like I said, for the most part, when I'm working with clients, I'm easing them into a level of stimulus that I think we can maintain over numerous weeks. That way I can observe progressive overload taking place. I can observe my clients uh, pushing uh, or squeezing out more reps in a set with a given load, right? I can observe that if I'm keeping the proximity to failure roughly the same week to week. But if, if I'm changing variables week to week, if I'm adding sets every week and I'm changing the proximity failure week to week and changing the rep ranges week to week, then there's a lot of noise that is now thrown into the program and it would make it harder for me to identify the signal that I'm looking for. So again, that's just my thought process when it comes to programming. But at the end of the day, all I'm doing is piecing information together, integrating into my understanding of principles, and then coming up with a method that I think is going to work for each individual client that I'm working with. Very well explained. Um, everything there made makes ton of sense. And it's funny. I think this is uh, a sign of a good coach when they talk about like wanting a long-term relationship with a client because you do get to further and further individualize and improve that program for that client specifically, mm -hmm. which is completely true. And uh, the signal to noise ratio, actually, that's something mm -hmm. that I, I heard, I keep, I've heard many times and uh, mm -hmm. makes just so much sense, especially when you coach people, mm -hmm. especially even with nutrition and you see their weight changing and you're totally. like, well, how many things have changed? Oh, you've been on holiday. Oh, you just like went out for a meal that night. Oh, you've just changed from a mass to a cut. It's like, oh, okay, this just too much like for me to really know what's completely going on and completely the same applying to training i think that also sings true to why training programs especially with bodybuilders really don't want or need to be that complex they need to like you said meet those principles in a method mm -hmm. that makes sense um which mm -hmm. like you said there's many roads to rome there doesn't need to be one specific mm -hmm. way but i do find at least a lot of the people i've spoken to on here and a lot of the good coaches tend to have that kind of at least like a like introductory kind of period and mm -hmm. then like uh, try and run at this period of time, which I guess you could call like maximum adaptive volume or mm -hmm. this, this this kind of sweet spot where we know like good stuff mm -hmm. is happening and then you kind of hit a wall. <laughs> like I said before, like yeah. you're going to have to deload at some point mm -hmm. or your, your body will deload for you mm -hmm. and then kind of come through mm -hmm. that kind of cycle again. So um, no, very well explained. That's really cool to hear. Uh, a question I did have for you as well, Martin, was I guess you can't piece this apart yet, but do we know yet how close to failure you have to be to see growth or rather how far away from failure can we be to still see growth? Do we know that okay. yet well enough? No, we don't. And that's a question I get asked a lot. And <laughs> yeah. this is, this is exactly what I'm interested in though. Like I, over time want to provide, uh, I guess a clearer answer, uh, a more unambiguous answer to that question. At this point, what I think we know is that there is a threshold point we need to reach when it comes to proximity to failure. So there's a, there's a threshold that we need to reach. And if we're not reaching that threshold, well, we're simply not going to be maximizing muscle hypertrophy. 
And I also think that we have enough data to suggest that there may also be an upper limit. So uh, I'm also working on more research at the moment uh, alongside uh, Eric Helms and Eric Trexler. So we're working on a meta-analysis at the moment, which actually takes all the studies that I included in the scoping review and meta-analyzes them. So for those guys who don't know, a scoping review is simply a way to look at the current literature body, uh, identify the gaps in the literature and the limitations, and come to a conservative, conservative conclusion about what we think we know, but also what we don't know and what future research needs to find out. Now, a meta-analysis, on the other hand, comes to a statistical conclusion about the data at hand. Uh, so in this case, I, I meta-analyzed the difference between the failure and the non-failure groups, for example, and I also meta-analyzed the difference between high-velocity loss resistance training. So when I say high-velocity loss resistance training, I'm referring to training that is taken that is taking place close to failure. And in some cases, participants actually reach momentary muscular failure with the high velocity loss resistance training. And I analyze the difference between that training and a moderate velocity loss. So again, hard to say what the proximity to failure there would be, but it's simply not as close as the 40% velocity loss group. Now, what I'm starting to see uh, when I kind of zoom out and look at the research as a whole, is I'm starting to see that if we look at conditions that we suspect are quite far from failure, so for example, we also have low velocity loss uh, conditions in the, in the literature, which aren't very close to failure at all, right? It is a very low velocity loss, about zero to, to you know 15%. So participants are starting their sets and stopping very, very early. What we see in these conditions is not much hypertrophy at all. So that's why I think there is a threshold point. Now, again, when it comes to attaching an RIR value to that, I'm not exactly sure what that RIR value would be. I just seem to think that a threshold point exists. And if we work our way up from there, again, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference between uh, failure and non-failure training, or at least at this point, we simply don't have the evidence to support that training to failure is superior to non-failure training, right? So what we're starting to see now is this plateau as we get closer to failure. And if we look at the velocity loss studies as well, it seems that there isn't much of a difference between training to a 40% velocity loss, for example, or to a high velocity loss versus a moderate velocity loss. But there is a difference when compared to the low velocity loss conditions I mentioned earlier. So if you're following along, you know what I'm visualizing right now is to some extent a nonlinear relationship between proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy. And again, I'm, I'm hoping to publish the results of this meta-analysis soon, but what I'm discussing right now hasn't been peer-reviewed. So you do have to interpret what I say with caution. Of course, peer review is such a... Uh, important aspect of, of the research process. But right now, that's where uh, that's where my thoughts uh, lie surrounding the relationship between proximity to failure and muscle hypertrophy, right? We have to meet a certain threshold point, but there may also be an upper limit. And again, that upper limit may change across the workout, right? So I think this understanding once again highlights that we shouldn't just dichotomize failure and non-failure training, right? We should just be somehow finding a way to incorporate failure training into our training program with a whole host of other proximities to failure, right? Because in practice, we don't ever have to just train to failure or to non-failure. Once again, these studies have been designed in a specific way to answer a specific question. That doesn't mean they are designed to inform how we should all be individually approaching our training. So it's hard for me to attach RIR values to this, I guess, nonlinear relationship that I'm describing, which is why I simply think that if we're training for hypertrophy, we should be pushing all our exercises 
close to failure, right? But accounting for the potential fatigue that we are going to experience over the course of the whole session. Again, if you're doing an exercise at the end of the session, well, the fatigue you accumulate isn't really going to be affecting anything, right? Besides potentially your subsequent sessions over sure. the course of the week. But from what I'm seeing in the research, the recovery period after a training session uh, for most people doesn't seem to be as long as we may think, especially if you have designed your training split in a way to ensure that there's, I guess, limited overlap between muscle groups in a short period of time. So for example, from a really hard training session, most of us are going to be recovered well, probably completely recovered within 48 to 72 hours. And so I'm more interested in like the acute fatigue that is taking place within the session itself. And, you know, I've seen, for example, programs in the past where every exercise in the program is prescribed to the exact same RIR. Like it might be three RIR the whole way through or two RIR the whole way through. And I'm not sure if that is the best approach to programming based on all of the things I'm saying. Uh, I think it's best to, to look at each individual exercise in a workout, prescribe your RIRs based on what you know about that exercise and how much fatigue you think it can induce. And also the order of the exercises in the program. Again, if you're doing a leg extension at the end of a of a of a leg workout or a hamstring curl, you can probably get away with really maximizing your intensity on those sets and digging deep to squeeze out you know as many reps as as possible. Uh, but if you're gassing yourself out early on in a session and you know going to failure on on something like hack squat or a leg press. Right. If you go to failure on a leg press, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced that, Steve, but the last time I did that, it put me out for 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> I was just on, on the floor. <laughs> I just couldn't recover from that. Right. So that would have arguably affected the rest of my session and the amount of mechanical tension that I would have been able to expose my muscle fibers to as the session went on. So I hope that's making sense. And although I can't give at this point, I, I, might, I should say um, I'm less inclined to give specific, I guess, RIR recommendations. Um, those are th that, That's generally how I think about proximity failure for hypertrophy. No, for sure. And I think the threshold makes loads of sense, at least, especially because that's, I mean, the velocity research is kind of showing that at some point, but pinpointing the exact number, mm -hmm. challenging. Um, I guess when reps start slowing down, that's a kind of a good sort of sign, mm -hmm. like significantly slowing yeah, yeah, down. Yeah. I guess that's a good kind yeah. of sign that we're in that ballpark range, but uh, very well described. Uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you, Martin. I think people are going to take a lot away from this podcast and I'm sure you'll be back on talking about maybe the meta-analysis or uh, further yep. research but if people want to keep up with what you're doing uh, where should they be heading uh, yeah no problem Steve I'd love to chat in the future once more research comes through and once I guess we have a clear understanding about this topic uh, but yeah for now uh, Instagram is probably uh, the place to be so you can check out uh, MR Fitness on, on Instagram or JPS Education JPS Health and Fitness uh, so I do a lot of the uh, education uh, work uh, with JPS. So you can check out all our Instagram pages and yeah, stay tuned for uh, more research to, to come through in the coming months and years as I work through my PhD and I guess continue trying to improve the standard of, of research um, and its application to the gym floor. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. 
who Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.